Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Good morning? You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away! Let me speak for the love of God! Hey, what's going on, everyone? Thanks for clicking play on this podcast and starting your week off the right way. This is Good Movie Monday presented by FakeShamp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. My name is Glenn Cochran and I will be your, let's say, Louise for this episode. And with me is the ever-reliable Thelma, uh, Ben Helwig. Hey, mate, what's happening? Uh, you know, I'm just uh, sitting here ready to go over the cliff with you. Well, I am steering this sucker to its final destination, but uh, there is no promising that I will not drive it off the cliff at that very end moment. So you're just going to have to stick around and find out what happens. Uh, and because along the way, we're also going to be shooting the shit and discussing the work of Brian Trenchard-Smith, that cultish master of B-movies, who I would label as one of the godfathers of Ozploitation. Um, he, he was also heavily featured in the Not Quite Hollywood documentary as well. And, well, he has a brand new autobiography that's just been released called Adventures in the B-Movie Trade, and he will be joining us on the show a little bit later to talk about his career, so make sure you don't miss that. Uh, before we do get started, a friendly reminder that this show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcast from, really. So track us down, make sure you subscribe, don't forget to click that bell, or whatever the hell it is that you click to get notifications when your content drops. So Ben, my friend, are you ready to get started? I'm more than ready to get started. Excellent. I'm excited, like Big Kev. <laughs> I forgot about Big Kev, may he rest in peace. <laughs> Uh, but But first, a cheeky mystery audio grab for the people to play along with at the end of the show. It was Chinese New Year, the Tet Holiday. The communists had called a 36-hour truce, but we weren't taking any chances. This rotten war was getting to us. We'd stayed too long and seen too much. This is insanity. There ain't no ceasefire around here, that's for damn sure. Something coming down, something heavy. We are in a deep situation, people. Sandbag detail, now! We're gonna refortify it, and then we're gonna protect it like it was your daughter's cherry. <laughs> I want this trench line squared away. I ain't gonna die here. Pay attention, stay alert, stay alive. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Happy Chinese New Year. Now we're gonna we're gonna bypass the regular intro movie news banter that we do most weeks, and we'll leave that to Guillermo a little bit later. Instead, we're gonna focus solely on the work of Brian Trenchard Smith, and in turn make this more of a spotlight episode. Uh, if you've never heard of Brian, well, you're gonna learn quite a bit about him on this episode. To put it in the simplest of terms, he's a filmmaker who played a major part in the exploitation era of Australian cinema back in the 70s and 80s, before he hopped on a plane and spent the last few decades directing B-movies and television in America. We're going to be listing many of those movies throughout the show, so make sure you put on your ponchos and get ready to nerdgasm with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess the best place to start would be what our first encounters with Brian's movies were. Do you remember yours? 
Uh, well, I mean, I had no idea who he was uh, when I watched this film, but uh, I think the first thing I saw was was Frog Dreaming as a kid. Uh, would have been the first one. As, I say, as much as I would have loved to have seen the Love Epidemic first, uh, it was uh, <laughs> as, a, as a as a probably you know, eight to ten year old or something like that. I reckon watched, most uh, from, people from of our age probably saw that one first. I think for me, like it was either that or BMX Bandits, one or the other. I think. Both of those films I adore, both I could return, both I do return to often, clearly as a kid. Yeah, like BMX Bandits for me was a weird one. Like, I I remember, like, Frog Dreaming I saw on TV, like it was on TV, but I don't remember, and it must have been on. I just have no recollection of watching BMX Bandits at that age. Yeah. And like, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's Nicole Kidman, it's, you know, it's BMX and stuff. And I was like, my recollection of BMX of that age was the stack hat ads with Molly, <laughs> Molly Meldrum. That's, that, that's what I remember. Oh man. Well, I, um, yeah. yeah, I, I definitely used to watch this one a lot on VHS. I remember it, you know, fondly almost every weekend with my mates, but Frog Dreaming was the other one. Like we watched them both unaware at the time that they were directed by the same guy. Yeah. No, no idea. And I mean, but he was a, he was a replacement director on Frog Dreaming. He the, was. The original, uh, the original guy got the uh, got the sack after the dailies didn't live up to expectations. Well, that's right, and that that's actually a story that's recurring through his career, where he's quite often brought into um you know to save a lot of projects. Uh, but you know, Frog Dreaming is you know considered to be one of his most personal ones, you know, which is interesting. You know, he's put a lot he put yeah. a lot of um a lot of himself in that one, I think, and and collaborating with Everett D Roche too. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that the first time that they had collaborated? No. Oh, that's a good question. I should know the answer to that off the top of my head, but I, I do not. I don't know. Like looking but, at his, I mean, looking at his filmography, Frog Dreaming is not till 86. Yeah. I mean, so, Brian was on a previous podcast of ours several years ago where he dis- we discussed Frog Dreaming at length. Uh, and actually that, that interview I'm going to put up on our Facebook page um, later in the week. Um, just for those of you that uh, are too lazy to go looking for it on our fakeshemp.net <laughs> website. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. I think those early films that he did, which we'll talk about soon, you know, they were definitely where the substance is as far as his catalogue goes, like for lack of a better word. you know, And that's partly because of the fact that they were just shot on film. Yeah. I mean, some of those, um, what, Man from Hong Kong, Day of the Panther, Strike of the Panther, Day of the Assassin, Death Cheetah, Stunt Rockets, some some glorious, glorious stuff. I actually went back. I didn't realize that that uh, Man from Hong Kong was his first feature, and I I was watching that in the lead up to this to mm-hmm. this episode, and I mean I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I, I remember I remember the first time I watched it, I, I really liked it, and then I think around the time that Not Quite Hollywood came on it played at a late night screening of myth and i hadn't seen it since i think vhs and i went to see that and i fell asleep because it was the midnight i think it was a midnight screening oh. <laughs> uh, and uh i me and cinemas don't react that well once it gets past like 8 30 i tend to just uh, <laughs> it's a warm dark room and i just fall asleep <laughs> um so i fell asleep through it uh and all I could, uh, literally, the last thing I remember was that is that great line where he does the uh, the I never met a Chinese without a streak of yellow, and, he, <laughs> like, and that's the last thing I remember. Uh, so I went back, I went back and watched it, um, and I like I was I was blown away. It's not only because it's really good, but because I've been watching a lot of been going back and watching a lot of kung fu movies on amazon prime mm-hmm. and i was shocked and like a lot of jimmy wang Yu movies mm-hmm. and i was shocked at how much this 
it's it's like a, like watching a Bruce Lee movie. It's like watching like you know any of those kind of kung fu, um, you know, uh, what's his name, King King Chao, whatever his name is, like all of those, you know, um, mm-hmm. Cheng Pei Pei, and all of the, you know those kind of um, Dragon In, Dragon Boat In, and um, stuff like it's all, like watching all of the one arm swordsman, one arm boxer, uh, boxer from Shang Tung. Like it's very much in that kind of vein. Um, and if you didn't know better, you would just say it was, it is a Shaw Brothers mm-hmm. martial arts movie that they just happened to shoot in Australia. Like, you know, when they do Bollywood movies over here and stuff. Absolutely. And um, I think, I think that film and, and a lot of his other early films, I think the, the, the passage of time has been very kind to them. I think they hold up probably yeah. more now than they did then or more than we realized. Anyway, there's lots more to talk about. Um, as soon as Jarrett has his way with you. Hey, this is Jarrett and welcome to PE Class. Now, I'm going to try and keep this brief because Glenn's got Brian Trenchard-Smith on the show and no doubt they've got a lot to talk about because Brian's just released a book. But I just want to say my favourite Brian Trenchard-Smith film is hands down Frog Dreaming. It's a childhood classic that I've watched countless times throughout the years and about two years ago, I was in a very fortunate position where I got to work on some of the special features for the Umbrella Blu-ray release. Now that actual release, those special features have been ported to the US release that came out in August under the US title The Quest. So if you are in the US or Canada, you can get that Frog Dreaming release under the US title The Quest. Anyway, it was a real privilege to work on it and I love that movie. I love Brian's work. So I'm going to try and keep it brief. The other reason I'm going to try and keep it brief is there's very little hitting home entertainment this week, so it should be easy, you would think. So first up from Madman, we've got Above Suspicion. This is only coming out on DVD and it's Australian auteur Philip Noyce's new film that's based on a true story of an FBI agent that gets a little too deep cover with Daenerys Targaryen, if you know what I mean. They'd be fucking... Anyway, it's got Amelia Clark and Jack Houston in it. Then another release from Madman that's coming out this week is The Booksellers. Now this is another DVD only release and it's a documentary about booksellers. I haven't seen it, but I can only hope there's at least one legit Bernard Black in it. Then the only other distributor putting out releases this week is ViaVision. They've got a box set for Ben. That's right, ViaVision are releasing a Hallmark Christmas movie set that includes the critically lauded Merry Matrimony, Help for the Holidays, and the beloved festive classic Matchmaker Santa. Now, I may have thrown a few lies in there somewhere, but the strange truth is that Benjamin really does like his Hallmark movies. You know who else likes Hallmark movies, Ben? My mother. Maybe the two of you should date. Anyway, aside from that, ViaVision have two other box sets coming out, a Carol Baker box set and an Alan Ladd set, and both of those sets have four films in them. That's it for me this week. Next week, I'm joining the guys in the studio, or the virtual studio, uh, to talk about Halloween festive movies, because, hey, it's the season to celebrate the scares. So until next time, stay physical. Well, we had actually originally slated this episode for some time next month, but we ultimately decided to fast track it and bring it forward so that we could tie it in with the release of Brian's new book. Um, But because we did that, as Ben mentioned before, we haven't really had much time to revisit many of his films to scrub up on them for this episode, Uh, but I did manage to squeeze in a couple. Um, Stunt Rock was one of them. I watched that several nights ago and... Damn, what what a movie that is. I I haven't watched it since VHS, but I was shocked at how ahead of its time this movie was. It's it's kind of a mockumentary film. Have you seen it? I have not seen it, no. 
this one, get on it because it, it came before, um, what is it, Spinal Tap. So it's a mockumentary and it follows um, Grant Page, is a famous Australian stuntman in real life, and it follows like a fictionalised version of him where he travels to America to work on a TV show. And while he's over there, his fictional cousin plays in the band Sorcery, which was a real sort of theatrical rock slash metal band of its time. And he also meets a female reporter. Cut a long story short, he injures himself in a stunt gone wrong and then spends his recovery with this woman as they just hit up all kinds of parties and sorcery concerts. That's all it is. But I tell you what, it's amazing. Like it's a, like I said, ahead of its time. And the, the best way to describe it would be it's like a, a stunt-laced mockumentary rock odyssey. So if you're into things like um, Phantom of Paradise or Rocky Horror, it's that kind of cultish thing. That's so. the one to that's the one to check out. I mean, it sounds it does sound a bit like um, uh, Miami Connection, kind of. But when, but when was that made? More... When was that made? Oh, I don't know. That would have been later. It was mid. I thought it was a, a, an eighties movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, I well, know. I know that, just because they've got the rock band element to it, and uh, yeah. you know the kind of weird martial arts I, I did read somewhere that the idea came to brian just like as a like a, a brain fart when he was like you know, in the shower or something one day and it just came to him because he made in 74 he made that kung fu killers doco with grant page going around to all the australian like mm. you know martial arts schools and stuff and and uh you know kind of researching the uh the the uh, popularity of martial arts in Australia. It's definitely it's definitely cut from that cloth. I think he's um he's taken his experience working with the stunt you know world and wanting to just sort of bring it to a theatrical kind of um I guess audience. But audience. The, the the thing that I found really sort of I guess I mean I'm reluctant to say revolutionary, but the one thing I found interesting about it was the use of split screen with the action stunts which is something that was mimicked in Not Quite Hollywood. So there's a lot of action going on and he splits the screen with that kind of retro, you know, 70s vibe. But the only reason yeah. he did that was because so much of that footage was shot on 16mm and it wouldn't fill up the, the cinema screen. So he sort of did it down the middle. But I guess it kind of, um, I don't know, it probably wasn't the first to do it, but it was certainly, um, watching it, it felt ahead of its time. It's something that Tarantino definitely put into Kill Bill. Yeah, right. Yeah, like it's. I mean, it's it's funny. I remember. I remember going to um, uh, was it Camera Action House in 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 Melbourne when I you know in my kind of late teens, um, and you walked up the the back room and they had like an editing suite. They had all of the video editing stuff when it was still it was still JVC video recorders and all that kind of stuff, and you still recorded on you know beta tapes and um, uh, beta cam SPs and all sorts of nonsense and those mini VHS tapes and stuff. And they had all of the editing equipment there and they did all of that split screen stuff like that. They had that on display. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, like it's great that you can do this, but does this really <laughs> do this in like this? This doesn't happen in movies. Like this is a bit, you know, yeah. Hey, Hey, it's Saturday kind of, <laughs> kind of nonsense. And you're like, well, no, before it was, Hey, Hey, and Saturday. I mean, like going back, you watch Thomas Crown affair and that is mm. like, the amount of times he uses that split screen or like, I mean, he, he has the same thing going on in 15 different kind of, you know, yep. squares in the film. Like they, it's like they discovered, they just invented the technology yeah. and he's going to go and use it all the way through. <laughs> um, so that's what, uh, you know, 
yeah, that's well, what that kind of thing sounds like. You know, like you know, some new technology comes out and every filmmaker goes, well, I'll give that a shot. Yeah, I can, absolutely. That, you know, I can use that now. And then after a while, they're like, nah, this is not... It's like, but I must say, like, or... it's not overused at all. Um, it's, it's, it's heavily featured in the first sort of, you know, 10 to 15 minutes because the film's introduced with Grant Page doing outrageous stunts over, like, cliffs of Sydney, over yeah. the harbour. And they are, like, jaw-dropping. Like, there was no nets or any safety equipment or anything like that. It was just all just... A man suspended holding on to stuff like that's it. Yeah. Incredible. Well, I mean, not to throw in a, a uh, an inappropriate plug, but uh, if that's your if that's your jam, then you need to watch Action USA at Monster Fest this year because <laughs> that was that's directed by a stunt man and it is just nonstop stunts. You heard it here, folks. I'll just put that out there. All right, and then <laughs> speaking of, don't forget to come uh, along next week. Uh, our show is going to be Monster Fest meets Halloween, so next Monday. There you go. There's another plug. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the thing is, I, I came to this episode, I was thinking, what is my favourite um, Brian Trenchard-Smith film? And I did, obviously, Frog Dreaming is where it is for me, hands down. I, I also think it's his best film. Um, but I've talked about it ad nauseum over the years. So I thought, what's the runner-up? And having just watched Stunt Rock, it's probably got to be Stunt Rock. Like, it's just... I was going to say, I'm, I'm positive it's, a, it's Atomic Dog. <laughs> no? <laughs> What was the other one? Um, Aztec Rex. That's another one Aztec around that Rex, time. Yeah. <laughs> no, but hey, I must say, um, before we throw to Guillermo for some uh, some movie updates, I uh, just wanted to drop in Day of the Panther and Strike of the Panther into the conversation because these are two movies that Brian swept into salvage at two days' notice when the previous di- director left. I don't know what the terms of him leaving were. I'm going to guess that's all featured in the new book. But again, the backstory of this and the production behind these two movies, which were both shot at the same time, is incredible and makes them worth the consideration alone. I love it when there's these stories of films that come together based on you know really troubled past and productions, and then you get this one hero director that comes in and just picks it all up. And sometimes it's not even directors; sometimes actors. Like I remember watching the the making of uh, Ghosts of Mars, and Natasha Henstridge came in two days before they started shooting because Courtney Love dropped out. Yep. You know, yep. like, I, you know, that kind of, and I mean, I can't imagine that film with, with uh, Courtney Love. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, um, I, I can't imagine Courtney Love in Day of the Panther either, but <laughs> what, a, no. <laughs> what a, like, what an outrageous film. Like, this is the other one I managed to squeeze in before we recorded and it, I was blown away. I think I mentioned it to you in private conversation. There's a scene where the main character's partner in crime, I guess you could say, for yeah. lack of a better word, is being chased by well, no, these... partner in the in the police force. P- partner in the police force, that's right. In... Yeah. <laughs> the, opposite the opposite of partner, of partner in crime. In crime. <laughs> 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 but she's being chased by these three villains, and it's such an elaborate set piece where she's going through rooftops and attics and up-down ladders, and it's like a 10-minute chase, and she's kicking their asses, she's getting, you know, she's getting knives thrown at her and all this kind of stuff, and after all that time, what's the payoff? She gets killed. <laughs> she gets brutally murdered by another guy that's not even part of the three that are hunting he, her down. He just turns up. He's leaning against yeah. the car with his sunnies on and, you know, hey, I've got a flick knife. Yeah. And it doesn't even really make sense why she's there. <laughs> like, it's a great it's a great bit. But I love the guys, too, because the guys are all wearing, like, Halloween masks, like skeleton masks and stuff like that. And they look like they're... Quite effective ones. Um, you know, they're... And they're you know, in jeans, jeans, t-shirt, and a Halloween mask with a machete, but or a crowbar. But you pull that mask off, and what's underneath? Face paint. 
face paint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These guys do not want to be recognized. No, that's right. Uh, but anyway, my, really... my, my point being that this is a, it's quite a quality film for, for, you know, what it is, you know, in context. Yeah. Look, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I really love, I've loved the Blu-ray that, that uh, the double pack Blu-ray that Umbrella have put together of both um, Day and Striker the Panther. Yeah. And my favorite part is of it is that in the menu, the menu of it, it's like, I think it's, I can't remember now if it's split in two or it just goes from one to the other. But in the, in Day of the Panther, there's, he gets seduced in the gym by uh, the, the lead woman uh, who's in a leotard kind of dancing around in front of him. And then in the second one, she does it again in a, but this time he's pumping iron in a gym and she just starts dancing around in front of him in a leotard. And it just goes, these are like five minute sequences that are just amazing. You're like, this is the, and this is just the menu. I was stuck watching that menu, like on a loop for about 20 minutes when I put it on. What's going on, everybody? It's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com. Happy to be back on Good Movie Monday. I'm going to try to smash out some of the major stories very quickly. Let's get going with George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road prequel, Furiosa. That's right, the prequel to Mad Max Fury Road is indeed happening with Miller directing, co-writing and producing, and now they've cast the lead. The younger Furiosa, the character Charlie's Theron played in Fury Road, has been cast. Anya Taylor-Joy, whose credits include The Witch, Split, Peaky Blinders and The New Mutants, has been cast in the role. Not only that, Australia's Chris Hemsworth and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who you may know from Aquaman and the Watchmen series, have been cast as well. There's no word at this stage on who they'll be playing. Joaquin Phoenix will be reuniting with director Ridley Scott, who directed him in 2000's Oscar winner Gladiator. They've got another period epic lined up. This time, Phoenix will be playing French Emperor and military commander Napoleon. Scott is set to direct from a screenplay currently being written by David Scarpa, who wrote Scott's All the Money in the World, and whose credits include 2008's The Day the Earth Stood Still and 2001's The Last Castle. Deadline broke the news reporting that the film's title, Kit Bag, is derived from the saying, there's a general staff hidden in every soldier's kit bag. Ridley Scott is moving from project to project these days. The Alien and the Martian director has just wrapped shooting The Last Duel, a Ben Affleck, Matt Damon and Adam Driver star are set in medieval France, and now he's moving on to Gucci, which will star Lady Gaga as Patricia Reggiani, the woman who ordered the murder of her husband, fashion brand businessman Maurizio Gucci. Kit Bag will follow. And talk about an ensemble, quite the Hollywood lineup has signed up for Don't Look Up, a Netflix comedy from The Big Short and Vice filmmaker Adam McKay. Joining previously announced cast members Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan in the comedy are, wait for it, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, Jonah Hill, Himesh Patel, Ariana Grande, Kid Cudi and Matthew Perry. All of them in one movie. Don't Look Up's plot will follow two low-level astronomers who embark on a media tour to warn mankind of an impending asteroid that could destroy the planet. There's no official confirmation on who's playing who in the film, although a number of outlets are saying that Lawrence and DiCaprio may be playing the astronomers. Cameras on Don't Look Up are expected to begin rolling before the year ends. Can't wait to see what's in store for this one. That about does it for me guys, thanks for having me. As always, be sure to check out ScreenRealm.com for your latest movie news, trailers, all that jazz. I'm out of here.
kick-ass song from a kick-ass movie, Talking to a Stranger by the legendary Hunters and Collectors, as featured on the Dead End Drive-In soundtrack from 1986, which is arguably one of Brian's most cultish of classics. And we've been talking about his films for the past half an hour or so, and I think it's time that we heard from the man himself. His new autobiography, Adventures in the B-Movie Trade, and uh, Brian Trenchard-Smith joins me now to tell you all about it. G'day, Brian. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, Glenn. Very pleased to be here. Oh, it's great to have you, mate. The last time we spoke was via a sketchy Skype connection to discuss the DVD release of Frog Dreaming. So welcome back to FakeChimp.net. It's a bloody good occasion to be catching up for. Yes, yes. And uh, you know, I look forward to revisiting Australia one day when uh, COVID is over, uh, <laughs> probably in the second half of next year. Uh, and, um, and I, I may even be making a movie. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I, I will not say further till uh, I, I know the uh, the money's in the bank. Well, I may be a very old man before you get back to Victoria. That's the that's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear, yeah, I hear Victoria has has been suffering, and I'm sorry for everyone, all my friends there who are mm. having to endure lockdown. And uh, I live in social isolation at the moment in. Uh, uh, in, in the hills above Portland, Oregon, uh, uh, which if you have to be in social isolation, it's a pretty good place to be. Um, I talk to the deer. Um, <laughs> they haven't read my book yet, but uh, they are going to, but they're too busy rutting and uh, it's rutting season at the moment. And you, you know how guys are. Um, <laughs> you know, Nothing like a good rutting. Nothing like a good rutting, I always say. And uh, <laughs> Uh, and um, yeah, my raccoons are at it too, and uh, the and I've got bunnies too. I've got these tiny little sort of very small bunnies that uh, are native to this part of Oregon. It's a menagerie. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm really into nature. Uh, um, you know, I've become you know, a bit of a tree hugger, and uh, I'm proud of it. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy everything in the, the modern world, and all, you know, but uh, I, you know, uh, nature is, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's you know, it, it, it lifts the spirit. And uh, certainly in these difficult times and in the current craziness that is going on in America. For sure. Now, look, before we go any further, I don't really need to preface this conversation with backstory into your work because, as I said a few moments ago, we've been talking about your films for the past half an hour, but you have just released this very cool book which takes us on a wild ride through your entire career. How would you sum the book up for people that might be keen to read it? Well, um, it's obviously for movie fans, uh, and people who maybe are even contemplating going into the recorded entertainment business. Uh, but it's, it is both a personal journey uh, and a portrait of an era. Um, and the 50 plus years I have spent uh, in the business uh, and, you know, still, you know, still charging on, um, it, that era is kind of over, uh, and COVID has basically, you know, kneecapped the the established business uh, and marketing procedures for recorded entertainment, uh, and caused a massive, you know, economic reevaluation. Uh, so, um, uh, if you want to look back upon when you know movies were in the yeah, you know, the, the the downtown theater and uh, 
uh, as well as on television and in your drive-in and uh, um, and movie production was uh, mask-free uh, and you know there was camaraderie and and hugging and probably a good deal more uh, on on your average film set. Uh, it, it yeah, it, it was a it, it was a particular you know, time um, that will not be repeated. I think um, we'll see the end of the two hundred million dollar you know, blockbusters. Well, I think they'll try and make them for a hundred million, mm. uh, and you know, many of the. 20, 30, 40 million dollar films will be made direct for Netflix. <clears throat> In fact, for a while now, quite a few of them you know, have gone to Netflix um, and done very well for, for Netflix. I mean, people will still go on watching movies. They, they may watch them on their you know, 50 or 60 inch screen and pretty you know, down the line, we're going to see 100 inch screens and we're going to see, you know, you know, something almost, you know, you know, giving you a movie experience uh, or a cinema experience in your own home. Uh, and that means that a, a whole bunch of, out, you know, of movie theatres are going to close because, you know, people find it much more convenient to watch at home. Yes. But it, the techniques for making watchable drama uh, will still continue. But uh, while there is COVID, um, there's going to be you know, a 25% loading on production costs. Uh, obviously, once we've got this disease under control, that can, you know, come down. But uh, the move now is towards virtual, you know, virtual sets. Uh, you can take a perfectly good background, um, be it indoor or outdoor, put it on a big LED screen and put your actors in front of it and... Uh, with them, the marvels of modern technology composited in a way that you really feel people, you know, were out in that particular location, whether it's a massive battlefield or just an interesting living room. It's certainly an interesting evolution in the whole journey of movie making, that's for sure. I've only just picked up your book and uh, I've got a long way to go. I've just started reading it and uh, I've got to tell you, for the first few chapters, it was absolutely compelling. It chronicles your youth and your family lineage. I was blown away by how incredible your parents' stories were, particularly your father's. With that as a foundation, was recounting your early years and, and the early years in the business an emotional process? Yes. Um, but it was, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, the whole process uh, has been emotional. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm kind of reminded of the uh, wonderful uh, Albert Brooks movie, Defending Your Life, uh, with Meryl Streep. Uh, and uh, uh, so I have to go back to the beginning uh, and, you know, and kind of work, you know, look at how I evolved. I mean, we, you know, our parents have a great deal to do with our formation uh, as, as, as adults. And I wanted to, you know, you know, look through the past and see the origins of my fascination with film and certain types of film. I think my father's heroism uh, was a big influence on me. I'm, I'm not the hero my father was, but uh, he was a great example to me. So I, I had to look at my past and see, you know, and, and look at the demons that drive me. I try to, you know, bring that out in the book in a, in a way that 
was minimally self-serving. <laughs> An autobiography is by its nature self-serving. It's look at me, look at me. Um, so what right have I to say, look at me, look at me. Uh, but, you know, we, we who, you know, have put ourselves forward in some way in the public eye, um, you know, have a, you know, have a tendency to, you know, uh, to talk about ourselves. And uh, so I thought I would try and do it you know, as objectively and with as much humor as possible. Um, because certainly 74 years on this planet has caused me to, you know, to look at life with a degree of humor uh, and not take oneself too seriously. Well, those early chapters definitely set an amazing uh, tone for the book. And like, I can't wait to really get stuck into the, the career stuff. When you were exploring all these stories, did you uncover any memories that you'd sort of forgotten about? Um, yes. Um, yeah, there, there, there were things that suddenly, you know, popped up. Uh, I mean, it when I was writing about the Jim Belushi version of Sahara that I made in 1995, the remake of the 1943 Humphrey Bogart movie, uh, I suddenly remembered that my father and my mother, uh, you know, t- had taken me to the top of what was known as the Gary Ann Plateau that looked down upon Tobruk. Yeah, and a lot of those you know, battlefields. Um, Tobruk changed hands five times. Uh, so I, I looked down upon uh, the, the, basically the, the, the whole area of, the principal area of the Af- North African campaign. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was four. Um, anyway, my father sort of gave me a little bit of uh, information about the, the desert campaign that he hadn't been involved in. And, and as well as those early years, as well as breaking into the industry. The book um, covers everything you've done uh, from Man from Hong Kong to Death Cheaters and Stunt Rock, BMX Bandits, Frog Dreaming, Dead End Driving, as well as your subsequent American films, TV melodramas and everything else in between. Now, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, I'm looking forward to diving deep into this book, but the one chapter that's caught my attention that I'm particularly excited about is chapter 47, Epics. Now, I'm going to guess that there's stuff like Megiddo and Britannic and Arctic Blast in there. Uh, yes, yes. I think Arctic Blast goes into the sci-fi area, but because um, at a certain point in time, I, I write the book chronologically mm-hmm. up until the early 90s. Then I decide to divide my American work into genres and subgenres. Sure. Uh, and, and, and Megiddo, Britannic, um, uh, you know, are uh, in the epic uh, area. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, Megiddo is actually uh, a, a guilty pleasure favorite of mine. I thoroughly enjoyed making it. Um, uh, and it is, uh, you know, made, uh, financed by Pentecostal Christians mm-hmm. um, who wanted to make a, um, a, a commercial, you know, action adventure, you know, you know, that would lead to the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming. Uh, and uh, uh, while I didn't share their particular, you know, theological view, uh, I was quite happy to make such a film for them because it would give me $12 million to play with on the screen, which I hadn't had before. In fact, they ended up spending, you know, many millions more on enhancing the visual visual effects once they saw uh, the cut of the film. They thought, oh, well, 
let's go even bigger. And I, and I said, you know, works for me. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what they were probably less aware of was that it was made with a sly sense of humor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, so, uh, but we had a, a lot of fun. It's a sort of a, a horror film for, uh, for, for Christians, uh, an action adventure uh, <laughs> with strong sort of uh, theological underpinnings uh, uh, for those that like such things. Um, the, fun, so, the fun is written all over the screen with that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I said, look, I don't think your script is very good. Let me rework it. And I think it should be, you know, uh, the omen, um, you know, uh, meets Air Force One uh, in the end of days. Uh, and they fight the Battle of the Bulge. Um, so let me uh, create a nice, you know, juicy sandwich with all those, uh, you know, uh, you know those, those genres combined. I, I like genre cocktails. I like to mix it up a bit or shaken, not stirred sometimes. <laughs> uh, that's my great regret. I never get to make a, a James Bond movie. Oh, my goodness. That would be an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, I did see Sean Connery do a pickup shot for Doctor No when I was sixteen. It's yeah, my favourite one. I was, uh, yeah, in the school film circle, uh, given a tour of Pinewood as you know Doctor No had finished shooting principal photography and he was doing just a uh, a pickup of himself going to sleep on a little patch of sand <laughs> um, uh, in in Jamaica, and uh, you know they they created that patch uh, in Pinewood Studios in the middle of a completely empty soundstage. And uh, he goes to sleep on his gun. <laughs> Not many people can have, uh, can, can have said they've seen something like that. That's pretty incredible. And, and that, that shot of him actually going to sleep on uh, with his gun as a pillow it isn't in the film. <laughs> so they wanted to shoot it for pickups. So... But look, my attitude as a you know a filmmaker who's also an editor um, is uh, you know shoot it you know if you if you ain't got it and you need it you're gonna kick yourself. Mm -hmm. Speaking of editing, if you were to cut your career into three stages, say early, middle, and recent, can you think of a movie from each of those eras that you hold most dear to your heart? Well, I suppose one's Firstborn Child. Hmm. Yeah, Man from Hong Kong. Uh, yes. I hold dear to my heart. Um, it, 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 as you know, the book will reveal, it was, you know, a, a perilous <laughs> undertaking for a first-time director. Um, but uh, so I, I, you know, I'd certainly that's number one. Um, God, you know, how do you? Yeah, it's a hard one. How do you choose favorites amongst your children? Um, Dead End Drive-In obviously is a is a favorite of mine uh, yep. too. Uh, and so is the Siege of Firebase Gloria, uh, yes. which you know, uh, veterans really appreciate. And uh, um, and you know, amongst my American work, uh, Happy Face Murders, which you know has has its critics um, for being you know a little black-hearted and and and, and deriving humour from murder, um, uh, but. You know, I I was attracted to the story for other reasons because it uh, it, it yeah offered criticism of uh, you know the influence of media on the criminal justice system. Uh, yes. All my films, in fact, well, I, I would say many of them 
uh, have you know, a, a slight, you know, uh, you know, social issue uh, that it touches on. Or sure. so I think that's that's important with entertainment. If you can, you know, make people think about uh, an issue uh, while still giving them lots of you know, whiz bang pop and you know uh, and so forth on the screen. Then if you can do that, uh, then you're serving two purposes. But so yeah, Happy Face Murders, um, which is a you know a, a true crime, you know black comedy, um, uh, is is a favourite. And obviously, in, in its way, uh, you know, Megiddo is uh, <laughs> uh, is so out there. Well, if I may, if I may pay you a compliment, I think you deserve full kudos for Absolute Deception and Drive Hard. I think they are two bangers. Yeah, Drive Hard was re- just dismissed completely by critics. Uh, Whereas you know it, it it is a fun romp, um, and uh, but it was advertised, it was marketed uh, as a fast and furious car chase movie um, made on a budget that couldn't afford to break any of the cars. <laughs> the, the SUV that flips over uh, is a stock shot uh, with some digital flame added. Um, yeah, we we were able to lay down a bike. Um, uh, but that was about it. Well, it's a fun. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie because the, what well, the fun of it is in the relationship between John Cusack and uh, Thomas Jane, who really sparked off each other very well. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's a slight misogynistic tone to some of <laughs> some of their banter. Um, and uh, but uh, they, there you go. And uh, but yeah, the. There's, there are quite a few stories to tell about that that I haven't put in the book, uh, but uh, that I will uh, someday w- relate um, in, uh, let's say, how, how to deal with actors with sudden brilliant ideas on the set. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll line up and I'll pay money for that one. Uh, now, yeah. b- before we wrap up, and you probably don't know this, but I was very chuffed to see that the poster that I personally designed for Pimp and Peewee was included in the book. Yes. Well, thank you. I didn't realize that you personally designed it, but it was a, it was a good one. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Uh, I was always frustrated that there was no artwork for that one. Yeah, well, it was a film that was, let's say, as you'll see in the book, possibly made for the wrong reasons, but yeah. uh, uh, I was given that opportunity and I thought, well, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of retrograde and, uh, um, you know, we should all be having a much more respectful attitude to um, male-female relationships. Uh, but, you know, I just thought, uh, you know, it, there are some laughs there. And, uh, uh, you know, I, you know it, it is, you know, uh, it, it is a fun romp for those that like that sort of thing. But I, I don't think, you know, there's a great female audience for it because it's so obviously very sexist in concept. Now, should I have... You know, stood me out for, oh, no, no, I can't possibly make that. Um, well, that's been my dilemma, I suppose, all my career, that, uh, uh, well, I, I want to make a movie. Mm. And uh, I think I can make a very watchable, entertaining movie out of whatever it is uh, that comes my way. And in some cases, obviously, I've developed these films. In the case of Porky's, I, I was a hired hand and can you do this quickly and uh, shoot it in 15 days? Uh, and uh, uh, we need to, for all sorts of legal reasons, get it uh, finished by the end of this calendar year. 
So I took on the challenge and was happy to do it and worked with a great bunch of actors uh, uh, who, who kind of got the joke too. Nice post. Well done. <laughs> well, thanks. You should actually design a whole lot of humorous posters for my existing films. Oh, why not? <laughs> I'm up for it. <laughs> But yeah. there, is, there is no doubt that uh, Adventures in the B-Movie Trade is an invaluable document and I would encourage everybody out there to get their mitts on a copy. It is available in paperback and on Kindle uh, and you also have a new website, briantrenchardsmith.com with the Trenchard Smith hyphenated. Yes, yes, yes. But the, the hyphen, it's a, it, it come, comes and goes with people, you know, but uh, I, I am a Trenchard hyphen Smith uh, as my you know, lineage will you know, indicate from the book. Um, well, if they want to find the website, they're going to have to use it. <laughs> well, sir, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us on Good Movie Monday. You're a bona fide legend and we're bona fide fans. Well, you know, I hate a chat. Welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun-Sized Alternative Edition. <laughs> Is this one of them collector covers where I got to buy 14 issues of the same comic book to get them all? Basically... Now Glenn has to change the graphic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, He's just going to draw mustaches on all of us. All Except right. Joe's, so do. in this edition, we're going to talk about the horror films that didn't get a sequel. Believe it or not, there are some that actually didn't get a sequel that deserved it. And there is a shit ton more that did get a sequel that didn't deserve those. I'll go, and I'm going to go with the most obvious one that promises a sequel, and we've yet to see it. I'm going to say Bubba Hotep. Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. Bubba Hotep. So yeah, Bubba Hotep, if you've never seen Bubba Hotep, you missed out on one of the most interesting movies with some star class to it. Not Bruce Campbell. No, Bruce Campbell is phenomenal, as always. He's always a lot of fun, but it has Ozzie Davis. Yep. Matter of fact, if you look over my shoulder, oh, it's like there's a poster there or something. Yep. Bubba Hotep uh, tells the story about uh, Elvis in a retirement community because he faked his death, and his friend JFK plays by Ozzie Davis, who have to fight a mummy. And if that sounds like a weird setup, enjoy the ride. To that this being day, said, no matter what I've seen, that was the best midnight screening of a movie I've ever been to in my entire yep. life. Same here. That being said, the movie the ended with a the credits had the line Don Coscarelli, who directed the film, built in the line at the end. Bubba Nosferatu curses the she vampires is when Bubba, uh, is when Elvis will return. Yep. Uh, that never has happened, though. Evidently, at one point, it was uh, it was in progress i guess the story by the way giamatti with paul giamatti as the colonel as the colonel and at one time they were going to have ron perlman replace bruce campbell so this has been something that was going to happen it has yet to happen but if you've got a billion dollars and you want to finance it give 500 million dollars to me for the idea (laughs) and then use the other 500 million dollars to make bubba knows for our two curse of the she vampires as we were promised bubba hotep deserved a sequel it's a lot of fun it's just entertaining. I, I've heard stories about him and Don and not necessarily getting along, but that needed I, that beats mine. My pick was is, is going to sound like a kiss-ass one, but I truly do believe. I have no idea, no earthly idea, why we didn't get a sequel to My Bloody Valentine 3D. My Bloody Valentine 3D was directed by Patrick Lussier and written by Todd Farmer, both been on the show. It actually really isn't a kiss-ass thing as much as it is stuck in my head of, it was a huge movie, opened at number one. We talked to both of them, well, why it didn't get a sequel? Much better film. I don't give a shit what anybody says than the original. It's far superior to the original, and it just, there's no reason not to do a sequel to that. It's not like it is a movie 
where it would ruin it or wouldn't ruin it, but like Cabin in the Woods because it came to my mind. I was like, oh man, I'd love to know what the next five minutes of Cabin in the Woods. And then part of me is like, no, I wouldn't want to know what the next five minutes of Cabin in the Woods is. So I'd really like to see a sequel to My Bloody Valentine's Day. It's just a lot of fun. Cool. I'm shocked he didn't say Deep Rising. Anybody else shocked he didn't say Deep Rising? Right here. I would have right liked here. to have seen a sequel to Deep Rising. If I thought of it, I might have used it. But I but it made a couple nobody's lists. Going, nobody's going to make it. And I'd love to see a, a, a sequel to The Last Exorcism. It's completely different than the one they did. <laughs> so, well, yeah, that, that's another list. That's yeah. a whole other list. Uh, I'm going to attack. I'm going to cheat again and do a twofer. Uh, I do want to see a sequel, and it never happened. And the ending le- uh, was building up to a sequel. I would, and I've mentioned this in a previous episode of Fun Size, Demon Knight. That needed a sequel. Yeah, yeah, they could have done two or three of those. Even if they, they were straight to tape, I think they could have been fun. Yeah, they, that could have been a straight sequel. That could have that could have told numerous stories, been a different person every time. Yep. And then number two, again, the ending had the promise of a sequel, but we would never see it and probably never will. Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. I would love <laughs> to have seen a... a, good a <laughs> I would have loved to have seen a sequel to either her getting out of hell her being in hell or somebody else getting cursed. Drag the hell. I right. mean, it's right there in the promise. It's like, I will give the, I will give a little shout out to that Jennifer Aniston movie, The Breakup. They broke up. I love the fact <laughs> that they broke up. The, I love the fact that Remy dragged her to hell. Hell. With the eyeball poking out, popping out. Yeah. It was a perfect ending and it could have, it, it raised so many questions of what could have been a sequel and it never happened. That's and and I'm sure that. that is Sam Raimi's pure choice and kudos to him. Yep. Yep. Good choices, gentlemen. I feel like i got beat on that one thank you so much this has been bonehead weekly next week's episode who knows we're canceled uh, well thank you to joe chad and james from bonehead weekly always dishing up something fun uh brian actually guested on their show as well last year i think it was on episode 89 and you can find that on YouTube in uh, video form, so make sure you check that out. It's a really good interview. I think it's like two hours long, and it gets pretty deep into his career. Uh, and I hope you did enjoy the conversation I had with Brian. It did run a little long, but we really didn't want to sacrifice much of it because the great man himself, you know, had a lot to say, and I wanted to let him say it. And he will be joining me on Tuesday night for a little bit more on our Rapid Fire video, so make sure you find Good Movie Monday on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, The video will drop at 6pm on Tuesday night, Eastern uh, Daylight Savings Time. Anyway, I'll tell you what, dude, Brian in that interview mentioned uh, rutting. And can you imagine if the two Brians teamed up? You'd have Brian Trenchard-Smith with his rutting and Brian Newsner with his shunting. (laughs) Shunting. Uh, Rutting and shunting. Speaking of of rutting and shunting... One of the other films that I, I, I watched again in prep for this was Dead End Driving, which I, I, oh, I haven't seen mm. I haven't seen for a while. And I remember when I the first time I watched it, I literally borrowed it from the video store because I was a huge fan of chances. Like I would sneak up at <laughs> night, you know, it was after after my uh, I know why you time. like that show. I would sneak up to watch chances and I was always I was in love with Kathy Godbold and Natalie McCurry the two main daughters and also coincidentally the two women on chances who never got naked. I remember thinking like, I don't understand everyone else is getting naked. <laughs> off. These two are not. <laughs> so I hired dead in driving when I saw that Natalie McCurry was in it. And for some reason in my brain, like watching that on videotape, 
there is the scene where she has sex with the guy where they first get to the drive-in. Mm. She has sex with him in the back of his, uh, like I th- at the time, like in my memory, it was a panel van, but it's it's next to a panel van and it's like a classic car with the hood up and they put the seats down and stuff. I don't know what kind of what kind of car it is that they drive, but um, <laughs> they they have sex and for me it was like crystal clear. Like I remember like on the tape, like going, my God, I can see it. It's you know like a. <laughs> I felt like Patrick Stewart in uh, an episode of extras. Like it's too late. I've seen everything. Like it was amazing. And when I went back and was watching it now on the Blu-ray, I'm like, hang on a second. Like the, the rain has completely blurred out all of the, <laughs> so you don't really see anything. It's like, this is like, what? Outrageous. <laughs> my imagination, my, my imagination really uh, went into overtime during that. Well, that's that that's not as uh, that's at least that's not as disappointing as when Malcolm hit DVD and the sex scene was removed entirely. The one that he kind of the, the one he walks in on. Yeah, does he walk in on it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. Like on. So hang on, it's not on the video. It, it might be on VHS, but it's not on the DVD, or um, I, I presume it's not going to be on uh, any upcoming releases either, because they 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 felt the film was a PG film, and that kind of just pushed it to a rating that was unnecessary. All right. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I know I'm pretty sure I've heard rumors that there's going to be a uh, a restoration on Malcolm and <laughs> the Big Steel. You'll notice I was careful with my language. Yeah, <laughs> and I would imagine if they they would be doing something from the theatrical print. I would. Yes. Think. Well, actually, now that we say that, Simon Sherry, um, who's in charge over there at Umbrella, has been on record. Um, I think we're filming or somewhere like that, and and told us exactly what's coming. So we're not we're not kind of stuffing anything up we're for anybody by saying that. We're not spoil. Yeah, that's exciting. Anyway, um, yeah, you know what? You you really triggered something in me just a moment ago because the biggest crush I ever had as a teenager was Kathy Goldbold. Yeah, Kathy Goldbold was great. I mean, I remember I started watching Home and Away when she guest appeared on that. Oh, yeah. That's how much I love Kathy Goldbold. Same. But do you remember the, uh, was it one of the opening, it's not the opening line, but one of the early lines in Dead End Drive-In, which I completely forgot about. But I remember after seeing it in, I was, I was in primary school, still like grade five or grade six when I saw it and coming to school the next day and, and what's the saying? Uh, so want to sell your shoes, fuck ass. Like that was... <laughs> There's always on about the shoes at the in the, the start of that film. Hot commodity. And fuck ass was was a was a phenomenal phrase that uh, worked its way into uh, you know just about every sentence oh. after seeing that film. What I I just love it when when we make up that kind of vernacular. It's incredible. Aussies are particularly yeah. good at it. Aussies are great at it. But anyway, and you I... watch like you you watch and you watch like Man from Hong Kong and Dead in Driving and stuff like that, and it's it. It shows like this Australia that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, that kind of seventies and eighties Australian where where the accent is so much broader than it is now. I guess prob- probably because of TV, um, and it's just it's it's so refreshing. And you're like, oh, I remember that as a kid. That's how we used to talk. I was listening to um, to some AM radio last week, or um... Magic twelve seventy eight. Trying to think of what it was. No, it was like three AW or somewhere like that, which is FM. But anyway. Point being, they were talking about Aussie vernacular and how much a lot of the kind of ochre slang that we use now actually came from Barry McKenzie and um, Barry Humphreys. Yeah, right. I could totally, totally see it. Like you watch... <laughs> like, but they made so much it. of that up and it just stuck. Yeah. Yeah. 
Incredible. Like I didn't realize it was made up. I just I could, watching those films. It was like that, that those because I didn't see them when they yeah. were brand new. I was <laughs> like, that's just how people talk. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> I remember getting dirty looks in the city, getting dirty looks from old people for uh, <laughs> using words like terms like fuck ass. <laughs> You're like, oh, don't tell me you didn't say it. You bloody poofter. Like you know, that, that was not let her. No, <laughs> not let her say that anymore. No, but yet, yet you did. But you watch even 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 highbrow movies like The Club. There's mm. a lot of that. There's a lot of misogyny and a lot of homophobia and stuff in that. That's uh, right. You know, and that was all just that was just part of the. That was just how we used to be. And that was you know now when I was working at the video store we used to get, used to get these old guys who'd come in and they'd be like oh can I, I'd like to borrow mer- like what do you recommend but I don't want any. And, you know, then they would use a few words that, you know, you know I don't want these yeah. movies. You're like, I don't, I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore, Mr. Stansfield. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, damn. Anyway, uh, look, before, before we move on, I wanted to quickly just drop in a few of those American movies that he made because, you know, we can't ignore the fact that he went to America and just has made a career out of making B-movies and television and television movies. Uh, so some of the ones I think are worthy of mention would be Night of the Demons 2. That's got itself quite a cult following. Is that one you've got behind you? It is one I've got behind me. Yes, sir, it is. There you go. So this is of no benefit to people listening, but I I'm can sure tell you now, I can describe the cover. It's great. It's got a like a, a demon, a witchy demon with a skull on a toothpick and looks like an hors d'oeuvre. It's great. I, I, I eye that cover off every time I do a Zoom uh, video with you, mate. There we go. There we go. Stuff. Yeah. Classic, but and of um, course he, he also did the uh, the arguably the best Leprechaun film, uh, Leprechaun Four in Space. He did Leprechaun Three and Four, but yes, in and Space, four, yes. in Space took Leprechaun to a whole new level. Like Leprechaun, Leprechaun Four in Space is to Leprechaun what Jason X is to Friday the Thirteenth yep. when he goes into space, and you're like, this, well, it's yeah, or what Critters Four is terrible. to Critters One, yeah. Like this should be terrible, but in fact, it's the best of the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun, so much fun. And uh, I've heard him talk about Leprechaun before. He just—it was just nothing but pure fun. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you get asked to make a Leprechaun movie. Why would you say no? Why would you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I remember watching when I watched the first one. I remember being like stunned. Like I did not see the twist coming that they throw shoes at him and that he has to stop to polish them. I like. I remember thinking this is. <laughs> simultaneously the worst and the best gimmick I've ever seen in a horror film. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Um, a couple of others he did. He did the 1995 version of Sahara with James Belushi or Jim Belushi, um, which actually has oh, a so pretty... Not the, one, not, the one with, not the one with Steve Zahn and uh, Matthew McConaughey. No, <laughs> no, this came well before, but it's actually got a great production. Like it is I was going to well say, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't be worse than that one. No, it's better. I would, I'd actually say it's better. It wouldn't be difficult to be better, and he and did especially one that, with Jim Belushi. He did one that was sort of misconstrued as a as a mockbuster, but he did Britannic, which was the the story of uh, the Titanic's sister ship, which actually suffered a very similar fate and um and sank. And he made a, a biopic about that one, which I actually kind of enjoyed. It's very low grade, low budget, but you know, once who, again, hang on a second, there yeah. is just looking at the cover. I've never seen it, but there literally seems to be a priest. Is there a priest on the? It's just like it's like a ripoff of Poseidon Adventure. Is, it, <laughs> is there a priest who gets a group of passengers uh, off the boat? I don't recall. I don't recall. It actually but, makes um, me really want 
looking at that at the at the i guess it's the the uk dvd cover of it yeah makes me really want to go back and watch poseidon adventure again <laughs> you're supposed to want to watch britannic because i want to watch this one i mean it does have jacqueline Bissett. yeah uh so and john reese davies and bruce payne jesus christ what a mm. <laughs> what an all-star cast it's only missing it needs arnold Vosloo to uh, pop up in there somewhere, somewhere well hey let's not forget that the title of his book is adventures in the b movie trade so that all just makes sense to me totally i mean and that's a play obviously a play on adventures in the screen trade the william yeah. goldman yeah uh, book just if you if you out there have never have never read that book that's highly recommended but like uh, speaking of um speaking of ensemble casts, he actually did uh he's ahead of his time he made two movies about killer viruses uh, and one of them was called Voyage of Terror. Now, how's this for a cast? It's got uh, Martin Sheen, Brian Dennehy, Michael Ironside, and Lindsay Wagner. That's pretty cool. Jesus. And the other one uh, was the Paradise Virus, about a virus on Tropical Island. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say he actually made that movie Virus with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and I was like, no, that would be amazing because I be. quite I quite enjoyed that. I thought that was uh, uh, the superior out of that and uh, Puppet Masters. Mm-hmm. The one with, with, I think they both had Donald, uh, Donald Sutherland in them. <laughs> look, you know, look. To be honest with you, with this whole era of the American films, I'm not, I'm not entirely knowledgeable of, about this part of his resume. But I have seen most of them, and I do return to a few more than others. But the one thing I sort of take away from this era, according to things I've read, and I'm sure it's going to be in the book, is that according to a lot of people that have worked with Brian Trenchard Smith, he's considered to be one of the most sort of efficient and fast-moving directors. You know in the industry over there. And I guess that's probably, you know, a result of him being called in to, to save all those films. Did he make a, did he make a Porky's <laughs> film? Oh my goodness. Porky's Pimpin' Peewee. You were not one. Okay. You were not listening to my interview with him <laughs> because we talked about that. You talked about, I did, I did listen to it. I did. Uh, yes. Now I did listen thing, to it, but uh... here's what's particularly cool to me about Pimpin' Peewee is the fact that in the book, the poster that they've used is the one I designed and put online. Is that the one you, I look, I, I was I did hear that when you were talking about that. And then he suggested that you do uh, posters yeah. for all his movies. Yeah. And I just had not, I missed, I missed that couple of seconds where you actually mentioned what film it was you were talking about. Yeah. And um, we actually, this is for people listening. Uh, if you didn't know that there was a Porky's four, Go back uh, through our podcast, go back to the franchised episode where we talk about the Porky's franchise and we have a whole discussion about Pimp and Peewee because uh, myself, Jared and Sean watched all four of them back to back in one afternoon and it was a magnificent afternoon, I've got to say. The beers were flowing, <laughs> mate, like it was. And when we got to Pimp and Peewee, we were at the point where we're like, you know what, we're so fatigued, you know, we've watched one, two and three this is a film that never got released. So let's just do it. And if we fall asleep, so be it. And we loved it. It was like actually good. It looks, it looks great. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, the stuff, the stuff that's in there. I mean, Brian talks it down a little bit because, you know, it was just a, he was a gun for hire. It wasn't anything he put a lot of, you know, passion into, but um, it was all made for the sake of retaining the license. That's it. Right. Oh, sometimes some of the best movies come out of that. <laughs> well, their obligation was to just have at least one airing on television and that's all they needed to do. So it's never had a release, never going to have a release. I ripped my coffee off YouTube. I think it's since been pulled, but yeah. So 
This have you seen? Uh, I'm just going through his filmography now. Have you seen In Her Line of Fire? I have watched that back in the preview tape days, my friend. Right, because this looks. I mean, this is a, this is a synopsis. When the vice president's plane goes down near remote Pacific Island, he is kidnapped by rebel forces and held for ransom. It is up to his female secret service agent and a press secretary to infiltrate the camp and save him. And the the secret agent is Mariel Hemingway. The vice president is David Keith. Yeah, I don't know who the press secretary is, uh, but this sounds absolutely amazing. And the. I'm amazed you don't have these on VHS. I am shocked that I mean I could have it. I mean, who knows? I just it would be something that I would I just would have got I would have got because who doesn't like Mariel Hemingway? And it sounds good, but uh I don't yeah, I don't geez, I don't think I, I don't I've got to track this one down. This looks well great. the other one that I love is the fact he made a movie called DC nine eleven time of crisis, all about George is that Bush. A sequel to DC Cap? <laughs> all about George Bush in office after the attacks. And what's cool about it is that Timothy Bottoms, Bottoms plays um, George Bush. And I don't know if that was before or after Trey Parker and Matt Stone cast him as Bush in That's My Bush. But right. Maybe. Either, either yeah. Brian was able to sort of, you know, cash in on that and get the lead from that show, or they saw him in Brian's movie and, and cast him in their show. Yeah, maybe that. maybe that's exactly how it... Uh came about they they were they're just big fans maybe i've missed an opportunity to ask that question i guess i'll have to finish reading the book have you got did he did they send you a copy of the book no uh, i um i bought mine on kindle oh okay ah so it's on kindle okay excellent i'll, I'll yes. pick it up that way and for people listening um we will be giving away a kindle version of the book at the end of the show so there's a there's a treat and there is like in case anyone out there is interested i've just jumped on amazon prime to see what is available uh, uh, for the in the Brian Trenchard Smith filmography and Stunt Rock, Frog Dreaming, Man from Hong Kong, uh, Day of the Panther, Death Cheetah, Strike of the Panther, they're all there. Leprechaun 3 is there, unfortunately, it doesn't look like Leprechaun 4 is, but uh, DC 9 11 Time of Crisis is available, uh, yeah. as is Arctic Blast, which well, I look forward to seeing. And Kung we're gonna, Killers. we are gonna talk about Arctic Blast in a few minutes, but first, let's um, let's see what Adam's reviewing. I have a funny feeling it is something uh, Brian Trenchard Smith related. Guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with another Good Movie Monday recommendation. Now, being on brand with this week's episode, the documentary I'm giving you is called Not Quite Hollywood. Now, what is Not Quite Hollywood? It is effectively training wheels for a cinephile that might have a blank spot in their cinema history when it comes to Ozploitation. What is Ozploitation? It is our Aussie version of exploitation pictures. What are exploitation pictures? Well, they're movies that are basically fascinated with sex, violence, and action and so what director Mark Hartley does here is he just populates his film with those three core concepts and it makes your eyes pop out of your head you can't believe what you are seeing and you can't believe what the filmmakers were going for and what they were getting away with and you know we've got a huge amount of Australian classics and really classy pictures but there is also an undercurrent of other classics that we have in Australian cinema movies like Alvin Purple, Barry McKenzie, Turkey Shoot, Road Games and even though they may not be appreciated on like, you know, that kind of classy level, they have been world ranging. Like, I mean, these movies have gone so far that they have landed in the lap of people like Quentin Tarantino and influenced their filmmaking. Uh, and so, you know, here Hartley's got an incredible amount of, you know, high quality talking heads. You've got everything from, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, 
George Miller. And as I said before, like Tarantino is basically like the principal of this entire documentary and his enthusiasm for this subgenre of film is absolutely infectious. So, you know, if you're like, well, I was like this when I went and saw this film in 2008. Um, I didn't, you know, I'd seen some of these movies maybe like, you know, at midnight on SBS when I was watching shit that my parents didn't want me to. Uh, but to rediscover these, this is a great jumping off point. It's a great springboard into exploitation. So check this documentary out, get a notepad, anyone's that make your eyes pop, write them down and then you can check those films out. Yeah, so not quite Hollywood, excellent entertaining documentary. Alrighty, well, the, the highway, I guess, is nearing its end, and so far, no cliff jumping, so that's good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> to sort of bring the theme to a close, I wanted to sort of pay mention to a few of his latter films. In fact, three of the last four that he directed were all shot in Australia, and I wanted to mention those. As I said, just before Adam was uh, talking about Not Quite Hollywood, Brian made a film called Arctic Blast, which was all shot in Tasmania. This is a surprisingly effective eco-disaster uh, flick that if you can imagine the day after tomorrow, like on a shoestring budget, it's good cast, well-paced. It's it's great. It's fun. It, uh, it stars Michael Shanks from uh, Star Trek. <laughs> uh, not Star Trek. What am I talking about? Although maybe No, he wasn't in Star Trek. He was in uh, Stargate. Stargate, yeah. the TV series. Yeah. And then like one of the small, I think Smallville and all that kind of stuff. Any of the Canadian uh produced films but indiana evans from mm. uh home and away pops yep. up bruce davidson fan favorite bruce davidson yep uh pops up uh it actually it looks great i'm a big fan of uh day after tomorrow so Look, I am, it's, uh... it's just amazing that it's really cool as an aussie to see a film shot and set in hobart in tasmania yeah that that's just not something you see particularly a film that is i mean it's not a big budget film by any means obviously but you know to have a film of this kind a genre film being made down there is very very cool and i proudly own it on dvd as i do many of his other films and i do bung that one out quite often you yeah (laughs) (laughs) so something else i thought you said something else i was like you do that to this film okay (laughs) (laughs) it's no rutting and it's no shunting there's no shunting in this bunging i'm bunging but, you know, it's... it's uh... <laughs> Moving on. The other ones I wanted to mention, uh, which I know this is a little bit contentious between the two of us, is uh, Absolute Deception, which uh, was a film starring Cuba Gooding Jr. that was shot up on the Gold Coast. Uh, and Emmanuel Vornier. Vaughn- yeah. Vaughn- I, I found this one to be like a really, really cool little genre film. It's about an FBI agent investigating a murder, which leads to a web of deceit and corruption. Very cliched and generic, but... I thought it was way better than it ought to be. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> better than it should have been. Well, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. does not headline good movies anymore. No. No. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is 2013. It he, yeah, uh, he hasn't he led still... many good movies following his Oscar win. Is that, no, that is true. But he was in, I mean, he was in, there was a couple of good ones. What was that? Chill Factor? Was it Chill Factor? That was a great one. Uh, what was he doing around 2013? Yeah, okay. case in point (laughs) anyway Uh, i I had a lot of fun with that one and the other one he made just wrong turn at tahoe oh mate is that is that a wrong turn if that's if that's actually a wrong turn movie imagine that then i'd be like well i take it i take it all back it is not though it does have uh miguel (laughs) ferrer and harvey cartel in it but uh it looks like they're all i mean this was part of it there was a whole bunch of these movies i think ganane 
mm-hmm. Anthony Ganane had something to do with what they um, basically financed it somehow using the producer offset that yep. the Australian government was offering. Um, and they would import their stars and they would sell them directly, I think maybe to Redbox or something like that in the US was how they yeah. uh, financed, financed them. Um, and, as, and back then too, I think to get onto Redbox, you needed to have, there was like a cast level that you had to have. So then you got a lot of these Cuba Gooding Jr. kind of guys, Michael Madsen, Dennis Hopper, they used to do, used to get all these kind of like yep. low budget, cheesy action movies with these guys in it specifically to get on to Redbox and then the early days of Netflix, which was the, the mail order Netflix. Yep. Um, and this For was sure. one of them. I remember I, I watched it as part of the, like I was, I was working at a uh, production house and I had to, they were doing the theatrical, um, a bit of the theatrical post on it. And uh, so I had to QC it. And I remember thinking like, it's, there's nothing worse than being forced to watch something that you're not particularly in the mood Mm-hmm. To watch so maybe yeah. if i went back and looked at it now it'd be different but when i was <laughs> watching that i was like what is the, what is this and i had no idea it was brian trenchard smith until until i got to the end credits mm. and i was like geez like you know but it lo- does look like it was made on you know five hundred thousand dollars kind of thing it doesn't well, yeah. look like a it looks like cuba gooding jr got made got paid more than the rest of the budget of the film <laughs> yeah well it was relatively uh well received so it, it, it's one that um well, I think deserves a little more attention, but another one that was poorly received, made just after that, was Drive Hard, uh, starring John Cusack and Thomas Jane. Um, and as Brian described it before, it's kind of like a micro-budget Fast and the Furious, where like stock footage of um, wrecks and digital explosions sort of, you know, dominate the action sequences. But what I found amusing about it, as much as I, I actually genuinely do enjoy the film... I found it hilarious that so many of those car chases through the streets of the Gold Coast and Surface Paradise are really slow in comparison to the kind of car chases that we expect. You know, it's yeah. almost like they're obeying the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> like, like when you when you see those uh, car the they, where they do the parodies of car chases in like the uh, the old the disability scooters in supermarket in shopping centers. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's they're it. All like, mm. But look, I would I would urge anybody to watch it. Just you know, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Once again, with any kind of movie like this, you got to contextualize what the production is, who's made it, you know, the, the restraints that were on it, and all that kind of stuff. And I think, like like I said at the start of the show, he got bang for his buck out of that one. Yeah, look, I'm going to definitely have to hit up eBay after after we finish recording this show, <laughs> and track down a bunch of these DVDs. I've got Magato, Magato, yes. Magato Two. I think I've got that as part of a triple pack with. Uh, a Van Damme film and uh, something <laughs> would else. You, would you, are you like a, like Jarrett and I, if we were to buy Megiddo, which I, I already have, would you buy Amiga Code 1, which is, you know, the first film of the series? Do you have to complete yes, I, it I like would, that? Yeah, I, I would, I would hate to watch the first, like, unless there's a recap at the beginning <laughs> of. I don't, uh, I don't remember if Megiddo. there is, but Michael, Michael York is in both of those. Ah, well, there you go. Basil Exposition. <laughs> he should be there to deliver the exposition. Oh, mate. Yeah, but yes, definitely. Everyone listening should be hitting up eBay and fighting each other for a copy of these doozies. <laughs> Suddenly the auctions go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I played. I paid $60 for a copy of Arctic Blast. Um, a, few, a few more of his films worth mentioning that we won't we won't talk about i'll just reel them off we've got jenny kissed me um out of the body uh, siege at firebase gloria which brian mentioned earlier aztec rex doomsday dog i oh, sorry doomsday rock uh atomic dog 
getting those two confused. Um, and he did one called Phantom Below, which was also had other other titles like oh, what was it? USS Poseidon, I think it was called. And right, I do have a War. copy of Jenny Kiss Me on VHS floating around somewhere. It's one of the ones I well, have not I seen. I didn't realize it was it was uh, Brian. Uh, I just like I I read the back of it and I'm like this looks great and so I picked it up for yep. a buck or something from the from a from a video store and now I'm gonna have to go back and watch it. Yeah, but definitely you know hit up hit up IMDb everyone and have a look at at his catalog because it is far more extensive than we've uh, we've led you to believe. But anyway, that pretty much wraps up our Brian Trenchard Smith episode and what a blast! His his new book is Adventures in the B Movie Trade. It's now available on paperback and Kindle which are on Amazon, highly recommend it. And this week we're giving away two prize packs, uh, the first of which includes the Kindle edition of Adventures in the B-Movie Trade, along with Man from Hong Kong on DVD. All you have to do is be the first to identify the TV movie spot that we played at the start of the show. And then, on top of that, the second correct entry is going to win two brand new releases from Eagle Entertainment, we have two horror films, uh, The Drone and Dark Light. And we will also include these two in the first prize as well. So it's a ripper giveaway and uh, make sure you're getting quick. Don't forget to visit eagleentertainment.com.au to check out what other titles they have. And you may as well support them with a purchase or two. You can buy directly from their website. Considering that we've, um, we've talked about so many movie titles over the past hour or so, we're going to skip our end of show recommendations for this week. And therefore... That brings us to the end of the show. Big thanks to Brian Trenchard-Smith for spending time with us talking about his career. Uh, I think we can all agree that he is a bonafide legend. And uh, don't forget, he will be discussing more of his career with me on Tuesday night's Rapid Fire videos. So hang around for that one. Kudos to Jarrett from MonsterFest, Guillermo from Screen Realm, Adam from the Australian Film Critics Association, and those guys at Bonehead Weekly, Joe, Chad, and James. Naturally, thanks to you, Ben. It's been so much fun, mate. It's been great. And of course, to all of you listening, uh, you're bonafide legends also. And uh, thank you for supporting our nerdy cinematic ramblings. We love doing it for you every week. Um, make sure you come and join us next week for Monster Fest meets Halloween. We're going to leave you with a song this week from the Stunt Rock soundtrack. This is by Sorcery and it's called Power Mad. Have a great week, y'all, and uh, we'll see you next Monday.
control.